welcome. Welcome to the table. Grace and peace. Um, so before we, we go ahead and jump in tonight, uh, I did want to just encourage you, if you're kind of on the fence maybe about like joining a meetup, um, I wanted to encourage you, kind of kind of nudge you towards that Be the Bridge group. Um, it's just, it's a really important class, uh, especially if you find yourself kind of struggling to make sense of our cultural moment on the topic of, of race. Um, and really the, the class's purpose is just to educate, you know, to teach us um, history, history that we may not have really engaged in school and to kind of give us a framework um, to, to kind of understand the, the, the tension that we're, we're living in. Uh, so it's, it's basically, it's just the best kind of curriculum we've come across that can, can do that in kind of the context of Christian, um, you know, theology and thought. So um, anyway, I just encourage you to go ahead and sign up at that link. And it is, you know, it's kind of a time limited class. So you don't have to like worry about it being, you know, a forever commitment. I think it's six weeks. Um, so at any rate, I, uh, yeah, I encourage you to do that. So uh, the title of my message this evening is Every Bush of Fire. And our primary text is going to be uh, from Exodus chapter three. This is a very uh, famous story from the Old Testament and uh, be familiar to, to um, probably many of you, but not necessarily everyone. Um, so we'll go ahead and uh, start reading here, um, starting in verse 1. It says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So uh, there's Moses tending sheep out in the middle of nowhere. When suddenly, um, well, I'm tempted to say that God shows up. But uh, it's not so much that God wasn't there and then suddenly decided to drop in for a visit. At least that's not how um, it's been really interpreted by the, the greatest minds in church tradition down through the centuries. And said so they would say that every tree, rock, person, shrub is sustained by the presence and reality of God. So it's not that God shows up where he was not before because every bush is charged with God's radiant glory. But what occurs with Moses is it's, it's a moment of revelation and unveiling, sort of like um, when you go to say like a live show and they have uh, the curtain covering the stage and then suddenly the show begins and whoosh, right? The stage is, is revealed. So Moses is permitted to see God's uh, uncreated eternal glory to kind of get a, get a glimpse of this. Uh, and, and here God's glory manifests as this beautiful fire that never 
goes out. Uh, here's how the English poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning put it. She would put it quite beautifully. This is, she's writing in like the 1800s. Um, and she said this, Earth's crammed with heaven, in every common bush a fire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit round it and pluck blackberries. I think, um, <laughs> I think if I had one prayer for us at the table, uh, this is kind of a recurring theme in my messages, it would be the capacity to see, to see that every bush, every flower, every creature, every person, all creation is, as Browning says, a fire with God. Uh, but truth be told, most of the time, we just flat out don't live like that. I don't live like that. Uh, I mean, most of the time. Now, sometimes, sometimes we do. Sometimes, like, we have these moments where we see as the mystics see, and the world shines in a way that God suddenly just seems like the most obvious thing in the world. And while it's true that very few of us walk around, you know, all day, every day with this sense of God's palpable presence, I do think we have moments, don't we? Like these moments where the burning bush is unveiled for us, so to speak. At the last uh, church I worked at, I used to um, live just about a 10-minute walk uh, from the, the building. And so because of this, I either walked or biked to, to work nearly every day, uh, which meant, you know, over a period of years, I must have taken this path kind of through these neighborhoods. It was uh, there in Wiley, Texas, across from Birmingham Elementary. I, I took that path, who knows, five days a week years, you know, <laughs> a lot of times, like hundreds of times. Um, but one day in particular, I recall, I don't remember a lot of the details, but I just remember I was stressed and angry. I was on my way home. It'd been a hard day, just stressed out. I was angry and I can't remember about what, you know, isn't it weird how like stress and anger just swallow us in the moment, but then a day, a week, a month you know, later, it's like, it's like it never happened. Um, so I can't remember about what, but I, I was just freaking out. And I was doing that weird thing where you argue with someone in your head, you know, like the conversation's long over, but you're thinking of like, oh, what I should have said, oh, that, that would have been great. But no, but then, then he would have said this, but then I could follow up. And so, I mean, I'm just engaged in this, you know, foolish, ego-driven stupidity on my walk home. So there I am just arguing away in my brain. Not outwardly, thankfully. <laughs> I don't know what the neighbors would think. Keep it all inside. Then it's okay. Then it's normal, you know, as long as it's all in your head. <laughs> so there I am. And as I recall this whole time, like I'm walking home, you know, when you get lost in, in your mind, like you're just kind of looking down, you know, you're not tuned into the world. You're not like, oh, what beautiful birds. Like, no, no. So I'm just locked in. I think I'm just looking at the sidewalk or something. Uh, but then it was right about the corner of Oak Street and Westgate there in Wide Awake, Wiley, Texas. I look up. And it's like, you know, my eyes have been down and I look up and I just freeze because I, the world, it was like it was shining. It was not like the sun was brighter than usual. Honestly, I don't, I don't have words to describe it, but it was bright. It was like, it was just, it was shining. And suddenly I was just overcome by the beauty of the world. Uh, and like all of my little mental games just 
whoosh. And suddenly, uh, these words just came to me. And, and again, this is not like, this was not, you know, an audible voice of God or something. Um, so it's very hard to describe. But I, I just, these words, they just came to me almost like a command. And this was the command. Brett, all you have to do is love. That was the command. And standing there at the corner of Oak and Westgate, I remember I got like emotional. I'm sure I looked at this point like a crazy person. Um, even though now I was sane. That's what's interesting. This was now I had actually found my sanity, but I probably looked crazier. Because there, I mean, I just have like tears coming down and my mouth's just hanging open. And I just stand there for a minute or two, and finally I I I keep walking. And I just had this perfect peace all the way home. It lingered with me, um, honestly, for the next few hours. And like I said, the mental arguing stopped, uh, the anxiety stopped. It was, I was just at home in the world. And honestly, those words have never really left me. Um, all you have to do is love. And I mean, to be clear, I'm not always faithful to that command. Um, but to this day, they're, they're like a prophetic word there. I, I journaled after that and I, I often return to that journal entry. All you have to do is love. It was, um, it was my own little mini burning bush, uh, moment. Now, um, let me be really clear. I am no Moses, <laughs> uh, but I think it's honestly, it's not unusual for us to have uh, at least one or two, perhaps more, um, of these kinds of moments in our lives. Uh, perhaps you've had you know, a moment like this. And um, the thing is, it's easy to forget that it ever happened. And, um, but here's the thing, like even, even if you're listening to me and you're thinking, like, Brett, uh, I don't actually believe in God. Uh, I'd still put this question to you. Like, have you had a moment like this? Because honestly, I've had a lot of conversations with people on this topic. And it's amazing how even quite, you know, kind of day-to-day -day secular people, like, if you ask them about their life trajectory, like, why did you, why do you engage that cause? Or why did you marry that person? Or why did you go into that line of work? Like, what, what's behind, what's the story behind that? And consistently, it will be these very kind of weird, not rational, dare I say it, God moments that led them there. Uh, why? Why? Because earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush a fire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit round it and pluck blackberries. So the story continues. Verse seven, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, God said. A land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. 
all the ice. And verse 9, and now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. What I want you to notice here is the connection between Moses' encounter with God, what you might call his God experience, and a call, a, a command that God gives him. In other words, this was not a snazzy, you know, goosebumps, God experience for the sake of an experience. What, what, what was going on? God had a purpose in his revelation. And notice that in Moses' case, it had social, political, even economic implications for him. And I think what this shows is how in the Bible, spirituality and social engagement are always intertwined. They're always two sides of the same coin, uh, which is weird, though, because, you know, even many churches, like we often seem kind of intent on separating them. I, I think, uh, for example, of my more um, kind of the charismatic brothers and sisters, this is really the tradition I grew up in. Uh, and we were, you know, we were all about the God experiences, all about um People, you know, experiencing God, speaking in tongues, um, seeing miracles happen, receiving a word from the Lord, soaking in God's presence, which to be clear, I am all for. I, I think, honestly, I can use more time being intentional about just being with God. That's beautiful. But, but then what happens? Well, what we're tempted to do is become content to just stay there. Right? Just, just endlessly soaking in the Lord's presence. God, you're so amazing. God, I sense your presence. You are so good. But this begs the question, to what end? Right? What, what are all of these God experiences? Uh, like, where are they leading me? What, what am I being empowered for? Well, in the case of Moses, it was pretty clear. And it's captured in that, uh, that little little word in verse 10, you might have caught it. So now, go, God said. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Notice, the Lord does not say to Moses, I want you to build a little chapel here. And, and this bush, this will forever be a flame. This will be a holy place. And then the world gets scary. Moses, I want you to retreat here. I want you to just run here and I'll be here and uh, I'll be your shield from the world. <laughs> no. What does he say? The opposite. He says, go and do what? Well, a few things. I mean, he's calling him to step out of his comfort zone and lead. He's calling him to get involved in the messiness of the world. He's calling him to lead on behalf of the poor and oppressed. Uh, in other words, this is not a nifty God experience for the sake of a God experience. That This is a call to be a, a spirit-empowered person right in the midst of the world. Uh, reflecting on this passage, this, this exact um, text in Exodus, Richard Rohr uh, writes these words. He says, this is the foundational text for teaching the essential relationship between spirituality and social engagement. Prayer and politics, contemplation, and action. Uh, but as I named above, we're forever tempted to split these things up, and it seems God is forever trying to tie them back together. Uh, and this can happen institutionally, 
right, where you have certain organizations and churches that are really good, maybe at prayer and perhaps teaching, but don't really get into the mess of each other's lives uh, or, or even the people in their communities' lives. Uh, or as I named above, this can even play out in a personal way, right? And it's, sometimes it's just along the lines of personality. Um, for example, you, you might have one person uh, who is just Mr. or Mrs. Service. You know, they're just loving others and uh, perhaps they're like a people person. And so they just love to get out there and in, in the community. Um, but, you know, ask them to be alone in silence with God and kind of face themselves for 10 minutes. And they're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, or, of course, the reverse can be true, right? You have the, the natural kind of contemplative who just loves a good silent retreat or engaging prayer and study. They love a good book, but ask them to start spending their life energy on behalf of, of someone other than the two or three people that they actually care about in the world. And they're like, uh, no, no, see, we're, we're forever trying to untie these two things. But in this text, we see that God used the season of isolation where Moses was a shepherd. And we see that he used this moment of revelation at the burning bush to do what? To commission, to send Moses. So again, think back to that, that, that kind of significant God moment in your life. And here's my follow-up question. Where was God leading you? What was he nudging you towards? Uh, or if, if it actually came in the form of words, what did he say? And kind of another key question would be, how faithful have you been to it? Have you forgotten it? Have you kind of drifted as the months and years have passed? Um, and don't say like, oh, it's just... It's just a small thing. I'm like, you know, I'm no Moses um, called to lead some nation. Like, I'm just, it was just a little thing. God, you know, I don't even know really the, I don't have details. Like, like, don't say that. Don't say your thing doesn't matter. Because um, I've been thinking all week how, uh, I mean, anytime we have these kind of moments, like surely it's significant. Surely, like if anything matters, that mattered, but but I think sometimes it's you know it's such a it, it feels like such a small thing. I mean, even mine, you know, like all you have to do is love, you know. <laughs> so, what does that mean? <laughs> well, I mean, it's kind of clear, but it's just not easy. Um, but it, I mean, but it's no grand, you know. I don't know, but like something more grandiose. Uh, so this is what we do, right? We just kind of feel like it's small. Um, but I think the truth is, when it comes to these kind of God experiences, there are no small things. See, we, we think we know what, what actions we take are the big things, the important things, as opposed to the small things. But because we aren't God, we don't actually know. And in being faithful to that call, and, and maybe it's just to love this one person, right, to, to text them to reach out to them, to be in touch with them. I mean, if you kind of think of how that could play out, th those texts, those just might save their life. I mean, being faithful to, to visit that person in prison or to mentor that child, like who knows how that, that kind of ripple effect plays out over 
the years. Um, if you're taking notes, write this down. It's not your job to judge the size or the significance of your call. It's your job to be faithful to it. It's not your job to judge, right? We get very judgy with ourselves. That's not our role, to judge the size of the significance. It's your job to be faithful to it. Um, some of you may know that a few years ago, this kind of made the news, uh, Joanne Kroc, she's the, the wife to the famous Ray Kroc who helped like start McDonald's and whatever. Um, so she made this very, very large um, donation. Uh, it was $1.6 billion. That's right. Not million, billion dollars. Can you imagine? Uh, and so she made this donation and it was to the nonprofit organization uh, that you've probably heard of. It's known as the Salvation Army. And so a writer, his name's Leonard Sweet, he was, um, he heard about this and he was just dying to kind of get the inside scoop on this story. He had some connections there at Salvation Army and he wanted to like figure out like, or hear the story, like how on earth did this happen? So he finally, he, he gets the chance to sit down with uh, General Linda Bond. So Miss Bond, she kind of holds the top position at the Salvation Army. And she was the leader when this gift from Joanne Kroc occurred. So he sits down to dinner with General Bond and he says, uh, I only have one question for you. Like, how on earth did you broker that deal? Like, I know people don't give gifts like that large to just the institution. They give it to a person they trust, almost almost a person or a leader that, that kind of embodies or like, is kind of a symbol of the institution. So I'm presuming it's you. Uh, how, how, how did you do this? And she looked at Sweet and she said, uh, no, no, Joanne Kroc didn't give the gift to me. Uh, I mean, yes, we, we bonded, but no, it, it wasn't honestly really about me. And sweet, he was a little bit dumbfounded and he just said like, well, how, like, why did she give it? Um, partly his skepticism was that um, Joanne Kroc was kind of a known sort of liberal Democrat in the Salvation Army is, you know, not that it's quite a you know conservative kind of Christian institution. So he was just like, wow, <laughs> what is going on? $1.6 billion. And so he's like, okay, explain. And General Bond said, well, here's the thing. Um, Joanne Kroc came from incredibly humble beginnings. She was brought up very poor um, in, a, in a not so good part of St. Paul, Minnesota. And she was raised during the Great Depression. During that whole season, um, her father was, was mostly unemployed and uh, he, he had some um, kind of drinking issues. And so she, he would of, often basically just leave the family without food, without money. Um, and he would just leave for like weeks at a time. And so they would go without food and even without heat there in um, St. Paul in the winter. And often um, Joan had explained, or sorry, Joanne had explained to um, General Bond that she had said like, I, I didn't know if we would make it, um, how we'd make it even through the week. But there was one thing, one moment each week that Joanne looked forward to as a child. And it was when a Salvation Army officer would drop by every Friday evening to deliver bags of 
groceries. And uh, this officer, like uh, normally you have to go you know, to the Salvation Army to pick it up. And, and we don't know why, but for whatever reason, this officer just really cared. And so he took the time every week to drop off their groceries. And um, Bond went on to explain that he didn't only just deliver the food, but he would take time to play with Joanne. And of course her father you know, was like out of the picture. And so this Salvation Army officer became this incredibly just positive, um, healthy, you know, male figure and role model in Joanne's life at a time when she just didn't have that. And so uh, Leonard Sweet, he asks General Bond and says like, oh my gosh, so it was him. And she said, yeah, it was him. And he said, do you know his name? And she said, no, I don't think anyone does. And he said, do you think he, like he's still alive? And she said, I mean, that was a long time ago. We're talking Great Depression. Uh, I mean, almost positive he's not. And Sweet said, so he, he died without knowing this? <laughs> And General Bond said, uh, yeah, yeah, you could, you could put it that way. Now, imagine with me for a moment that you are this Salvation Army officer. And you, at some point in your life, you sense some kind of call, some kind of draw to this world. Um, but you have spent your life mostly in behind the scenes, quiet service. You have lived in obscurity. And you've tried to love and do your best, but honestly, like you have no idea that that little girl you're visiting will go on to be a billionaire and you just brokered a $1.6 billion, like literally the largest charitable donation in world history. Congratulations. Like this is mind blowing. And this is, this is what I, it gets me to thinking about as I think about like my life and your lives is what a remarkable thing to consider that you and I will likely not be aware of the single greatest, most impactful, most far-reaching moment of our lives. And that, that's unbelievable to think about. Like, just like that Salvation Army officer, like in that moment, whenever that moment comes for you, like you will probably just return home to your friends and family and they'll ask, oh, how was your day? And you'll be like, oh, it was fine. And you'll have no idea the life you just saved, the person you just impacted, the new possibility that entered someone's world. Why? Because you cared. And because you were faithful to God's call. You see, earth's crammed with heaven. And every common bush is a fire with God. But only he who sees only he who takes off his shoes. The rest sit around it and pluck blackberries. So as I think of us, let's be, um, let's be the community that sees, that takes off our shoes, that is faithful to the call. And man, I just wonder what on earth could God do if we were faithful to that vision. Amen. All right, let me let me go ahead and pray for you. Lord Jesus, um, I pray that we would learn 
to be the people who see. May we learn to, to notice, to tune in, to see you shining in and through all things and all people. God, may we see as the mystics see. And may we not waste our lives in distraction and plucking blackberries, but may we have those spiritual eyes, God. Yeah, lead us forward. In the name of Jesus, I pray.